It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, the host of Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen. And when LeBron James scores 41 points for two games in a row and Steph Curry gets ejected for the first time in his career for throwing his mouthpiece, one that hits the, uh, I think, progeny of a minority owner of the opposing team, then that is a good indication that it's time to record an emergency podcast. So here I am for uh, the post-game six pre-game seven emergency podcast. Um, in a minute, we're going to be talking to Scott Rabb, the ultimate Cleveland sports fan, about what he's feeling right now. But first up, I'm joined by ESPN's Warriors beat writer, Ethan Sherwood-Strauss. Hey, Ethan. Hey, Josh. Thank you for uh, being here with me and the very simplistic sports narrative. And that's what we like to traffic in here on this program is that the Warriors had this all sewn up before Draymond uh, punched LeBron James in the nuts at the end of game four. And then things kind of turned sideways, both for LeBron and for the Warriors. Um, do you feel like that's what's happened in the last couple of games or is there something more complicated going on? Uh, there are a few things beyond that, but that certainly is the turning point and what will haunt them should they ultimately lose this series. I do wonder, when you say punched him in the dick, I, I feel like <laughs> we're going to lose the context of Draymond being a habitual line stepper that led up to this, because in a vacuum, it doesn't really look like a dick punch. It sort of looks more like a pawing. I feel like our children and grandchildren, when we show them a replay, of why Draymond Green was uh, ultimately suspended will be slightly confused by that just, you know, as a discrete event. Um, but beyond that, to answer your question, I, I think there are a few things happening. Um, one of them is that LeBron James, absolutely incredible, and I'm not sure that Andre Iguodala is totally healthy right now and can do anything about him. And moreover, LeBron is making his jump shot that makes him nearly impossible to contain. He's been great with the jumper the last two games, um, and he's absolutely just controlling the rock, not turning it over. 
And Steph Curry, I think in many ways in these playoffs, has kind of been reduced to just a three-point shooter. And I feel as though that's gotten ignored in part because we define him by three-point shooting, so people haven't noticed that that's all that's really left right now. He's not finishing at the rim, which is very important because this team is a dearth of people who finish at the rim. He's uh, within five feet shooting 45% of the rim in these finals for the entire playoffs, 50%. He was at 64.5 during the season. So I think that's another underrated aspect that hasn't gotten as much attention as, say, Harrison Barnes not being able to hit any kind of shot. We're definitely in the realm of weird basketball. So this kind of reminds me of a 22-inning baseball game at this point where you have a pitcher playing left field. When you see guys like Dante Jones playing meaningful minutes and the rotations narrow down so much by necessity somewhat for Golden State, right, because of injuries to Bogut and, uh, you know, Draymond being out for that game. But do you also have a situation where coaches on both sides you know, Teron Liu doesn't trust Iman Shumpert, and Kevin Love is now basically relegated to the bench. And for the Warriors, you have Harrison Barnes, like even with Iguodala, clearly not able to move. Barnes was still kind of stuck to the bench. And so we're at this point in the series, and I'm interested to see who plays and who doesn't in Game 7, where the teams are just not the teams that played throughout the year, and yet, you know, we're going into a deciding game with kind of weird lineups. Yeah, and that, that was such a narrative with the Warriors is this is a 73-win team. Well, yes and no. I mean, they've won 73 wins, but right now they're almost like it, it, it's one of those scenes in a movie where people are coming back from space and their aircraft is breaking up as they hit the atmosphere. They're falling apart right now and just trying to keep it all together. They're incredibly battered, and I don't know if it's an especially great sign that they had champagne on ice the last two games and, and couldn't get it close to done, regardless of the circumstances. So um, they are certainly not the healthier team as an inversion of what happened last year. Uh, certainly they're going to be incredibly desperate, and I can't wait to see what's happening Game 7. But I do wonder if we get caught up in this concept of momentum and we assume that whatever just happened is going to uh, continue to happen. If you kind of step back from this, okay, so the Warriors were up 3-1. You had the dick punch. They were without their second-best player at home and lost. Then they lost at Quicken Loans, which is a very hard place to win. They still have a pretty good shot at this. I, I know it's all doom and gloom and the walls are, walls are caving in, but I, I don't know. Should, we, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't be shocked if they won uh, at home in a Game 7, as teams tend to do, right? Yeah, of course not. And with Steph and Clay, if that is your whole offense and they're taking quote unquote bad shots, there are a large number of games where those shots will go in and they'll win kind of independent of anything else that's happening on the court, independent of anything else the other team does or that their teammates are doing. Mm. Well, I guess the game is sort of divided into two parts where uh, they did do that, but by the time they started to do that, or the time that uh, Clay started to do that, they couldn't stop LeBron. I guess it began with their inability to hit any shots in the first half, and then later their inability to stop the Cavs when they just needed to uh, they needed to close that gap. Um, so you know, and and then there's this other weird aspect to this all, and it's just so hard to talk about. 
And that's why I'm happy to be talking to you in the Slady context, because in the world of sports, this is a very weird one to broach, which is the topic of Curry's health, where it, it, it seems like it's very loaded and emotional, where if you discuss it logically, people are going to flip out and scream that you're making excuses as opposed to just analyzing the evidence. And that, to me, not just for this series, but just as an explanation for why he hasn't been what he is in this playoffs, uh, in these playoffs in general, uh, it, it, it's strange to me that we just can't have a logical conversation about that. Yeah, and it seems like the Cavs were hunting him on uh, when the Cavs were on offense and the Warriors were on defense last night. And there had been this kind of strange trend of him defending LeBron very well, which definitely did not continue no. in game six. And um, I'm curious what your view from an X's and O's standpoint was about what the Cavs were able to do, especially getting Curry on those switches, because so much of what we've heard and I think what we've seen with our eyes um, in the games the Cavs have won, it just seems like they're trying harder. Um, but it did seem like in game six, early go- in the early going, when the Cavs did build that lead that turned out to be insurmountable, they were really feasting on those curry switches. Yeah, and it wasn't the most complex offense, and that can be an issue. And they certainly, you know, they, they got bogged down in the iso ball as the Warriors are starting to close that gap. But then what ends up happening is if you're doing iso ball and high pick and roll, um, it's hard to do better at that core offense than using LeBron James. He's kind of a master at it. I, I was just so impressed with how he went from destroying uh, destroying the Warriors, shooting, shooting over Barbosa. He finally got, he finally started to really leverage his size when switched against a smaller player to just moving Tristan Thompson around like a chess piece to really finish it off at the end there. Um, and he was just absolutely incredible. And the Warriors have issues with two guys who are tasked with guarding him, right? Where you've got Iguodala with the back spasms, and you've got Barnes with the, uh, I don't know what the hell is going on with him, spasms. Um, so that's, that's sort of, it, it's a funny thing. It's such, a, it's such an interesting juxtaposition of the Warriors with this amazing advantage of Game 7 at home at the same time, seems like everything's going wrong. And with LeBron, it was just a couple days ago where Bob Volgaris was saying on Twitter that the amazing thing about LeBron is that he hasn't developed a consistent jump shot for however many years he's been in the league. And you can look kind of retroactively and say the years where they won a championship, he was making jumpers in key moments in key games. And so much of the conversation around him tilts when he does make those jumpers. I do think you can also go back and say it's not like they would have won any other championship except for the one against Dallas if LeBron had played any better or differently in the finals maybe you disagree but the conversation around him is so different and the game is so different when he's shooting those jumpers with confidence and they're going in I I, I disagree I feel like they could have won any of those finals if he was making 100% of his jump shots but you know, maybe. Well, maybe, what about 150 percent? I mean, why are we why are we putting a ceiling on 110 percent on uh, on jump shots? I, I don't know. No, I I agree with you. And the jump shot for him, it's been rather mysterious. It comes and goes. He starts really dancing with it when he starts to get comfortable. And I think the Warriors really erred 
in game five when Iguodala, look, you can go under screens on him, but get some sort of close uh, closeout there. He gave him a wide-open three-pointer to begin uh, his onslaught in game five, and then another wide-open one where he really died on the screen. And maybe I'm doing a correlation uh, is causation error, but it seemed as though that got him going, and he started to find that jump shot uh, that it eluded him, and that's really a huge difference. I mean, if he has the jumper firing, he is the best player in the world, and I don't know if it carries him to Game 7, but he certainly has a lot of reason to be comfortable considering uh, considering the defensive options against him right now. So the thing I'm most curious to hear you talk about is the kind of um, emotions in the Warriors locker room and kind of around the team, there's all of this noise on Twitter after game six where Steph Curry's wife, Aisha, is talking about the ill treatment that they're getting in Cleveland with her dad uh, reportedly being racially profiled because the police in the arena thought he was some uh, you know scammer who habitually breaks into sporting events, which is just an incredibly odd subplot to be happening Very strange. at the end of the NBA finals. And you really should have read my preview. It was in there. You know, I called it. Oh, I my God. Called it. But, um, you know, you, you continue. Uh, and then at the end of the game, she tweets and deletes the fact that the games are rigged and the NBA just wants higher ratings. Steve Kerr's daughter is talking about how classless the Cleveland fans are. And I should add, like, perhaps slightly more importantly, Steph Curry is outraged uh, about the refs, throws his mouthpiece, hits a fan. Steve Kerr goes on this long rant about the refs. What is going on in these guys' heads right now? Uh, let me be clear. We did not lose because of the officiating. They, they totally outplayed us, and Cleveland deserved to win. Uh, but those three, three of the six fouls were incredibly inappropriate calls um, for anybody, much less the MVP of the league. So are, are you okay with him throwing his mouthpiece? Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm happy he threw his mouthpiece. He should be upset. I'm not sure I know what's going on in their heads, but it was a fascinating scene to behold where uh, just walking in the locker room and Steph was by himself for a long period of time um, just sort of staring at the ground and sort of sullen. He's not a sullen guy. He's really good at taking losses with equanimity, and uh, he's always very optimistic. In this case, he seemed somewhere between fuming and uh, just depressed, and I guess understandably, and he just sort of sat there. He's got this big bandage on his knee, wrapping his knee, looking almost like a little bit of a smoothed-out paper mache, which we just for, I guess, the macho reasons in sports and the fact that you have no excuses and whatnot, we almost uh, just avoid talking about it as media. Well, that, and you're not allowed to take pictures in the locker room. So you can't really take a picture of it, um, the knee looking funky and whatnot. And so we just sort of don't talk about it, like uh, the reporters who um, pretended that FDR could walk, and we just sort of ignore it for the most part. Um, and... So he's sitting there, and then you see Kerr and Bob Myers. They go into a room. You can see, and Bob Myers is the GM of the Warriors, I should say, for those who don't know. And you can really see that they were going in there to have a conversation and deliberate over something. And then Kerr exits the room and goes to the press conference. And you can see when he's talking about the calls that Steph's not getting that this is a conversation that he had with the GM where they were probably going over things. And he was saying, you know what? 
I'm going to spend my fine money right now. Um, and it was really a desperation move to finally get some of those calls off the ball for Curry. So it, it, it is the, I guess we would define it as a rant, but this was a very strategic rant. And so I think it speaks to a general desperation right now uh, for this team, um, you know, precipitated by the injuries and everything else that we're talking about. Um, but you know what? This is also a team that plays a lot better when it's actually desperate than when it has some worlds to rest on. I guess maybe the most surprising thing about Game 6 was that the missing ingredient for Game 5 obviously was Draymond Green, and you could explain away the loss in Game 5 for the Warriors because of Draymond's absence. He comes back in Game 6. Everyone expects him to be the difference. He says out loud at, in a Draymondish way that he is going to be the difference. And then he just didn't do much. And usually when when Draymond, as in the Thunder series, when he doesn't play well, it's like a very visible bad game. Like those games against the Thunder, he was bad. And I thought at least in game six, he just wasn't really present. And it's not I and I'm not gonna say that he wasn't trying hard or that he disappeared in the in a big game. You know, it's just usually when Draymond is really good, you notice that he's good. And when he's bad, you notice. And in this game, it was just like, I guess Draymond was there, but he just wasn't really one of the top 10 things you think about after that game. Yeah, he wasn't Dante Jones level noticeable in that particular game. But he did start <laughs> off defensively very well. Um, and I think the foul calls might have gotten to him. He got into a bit of foul trouble. The Warriors uh, distributed their foul trouble quite poorly uh, to Steph Curry and Draymond Green. The Cavs were much smarter in distributing it to the aforementioned. Uh, no, I think Tommy Jones didn't get into foul trouble. I think it was Richard Jefferson and Kevin Love, um, which, you know, with Kevin Love, it actually helped the Cavs quite a bit. I mean, that's what I noticed at the beginning was that they really started trying to attack Kevin Love, the Warriors did, with Steph Curry on the pick and roll, and they looked like they were going to get whatever shot they wanted. They missed a few opening, wide-open shots. But then once Love got into foul trouble and Richard Jefferson came in, the Cavs just switched everything. Um, and so I don't know if they're going to get that opportunity again. I don't know how Lou can do that. The, the Cavs, as crazy as it sounds, I mean, could you imagine that when they made the trade for Kevin Love? that at a point for the Cleveland Cavaliers, Richard Jefferson would seemingly fit much better for them than Kevin Love. But it seems like that's where they are. Um, and, yeah, I just totally rambled and trailed off when you gave me the Draymond point. I'm not really getting anywhere with that. Well, that, that just proves our point, that Draymond was not really a thing to be talked about. So, yeah. Game 7, in all of the studies that I've seen and that have been done, about sports and home court slash home field slash home ice slash home pitch advantage. Um, it's refereeing kind of whether it's conscious or unconscious bias. And obviously, you know, Steve Kerr complaining about the refs after game seven would not only look bad, but would be ineffectual. <laughs> um, and so it is uh, kind of remarkable what effect that refs can have on a game. And we can't sit here and predict what will happen. But that just does seem like a smart strategic move, both to like tell your players that you have their backs, but also if there's some like sort of micro chance of influencing the refs, um, you know, and that's why when people 
talk about, you know, should the Warriors have gone for, uh, you know, all those wins in the regular season, at least by virtue of having many more wins than the Cavs, they have the refs and they have the home court and the crowd in game seven. Yeah. And I, I think that working the refs can have an impact. Um, it's not like these guys avoid sports center. I, I don't think that they live some monastic existence, these referees. So if this becomes a talking point and you've planted that in their heads, and then the crowd will be even more aggrieved and rabid. Uh, I think that could have an impact. I do wonder if the market inefficiency is having your wife complain about the refs on Twitter and having that be a story because, unlike the coach, she can't get fined. So I, I, I wonder if maybe that is, uh, that is the future as poor a look as it, as it might be. Um, I actually found it interesting that media members, when they saw that, were lamenting it and shaking their heads that Aisha Curry was tweeting that about the NBA, because I thought to myself, ultimately, what's the downside? I mean, we're almost considering these family members now as though they're part of uh, the NBA family and part of the show and just the, you know, the, the tapestry of it all, but they're not actually. And so it, it is odd that we've reached a point where Aisha Curry's thoughts on refing become national news. Oh, we live in, um, we live in such a wonderful time, Ethan. <laughs> It wasn't such a wonderful time. This is this is an incredible time. I mean, we do have to just step back, and you've mentioned a lot of it, but just the sheer absurdity of everything that happened in that game, it's kind of amazing for all the anger and all the drama and all the recriminations that we have. Aisha Curry tweeting that the NBA is rigged. Um, you know, I guess it was sort of rigged to benefit her husband probably, uh, you know, if it was rigged to that level, you've got the, the mouthpiece throwing that's hilarious on its face, but then it, it hits, um, it hits the son of a, a minority owner and Steph has to apologize because there's a little bit of a fear of suspension. Um, and the Dante Joe, it's just an amazing turn of events precipitated by a dick punching or swipe or whatever we're going to call it. Um, I think this is really making up for the fact that we just haven't had close games in these finals. It's just an absurd circus. Yeah, and if the NBA isn't rigged, then it has been fortuitous for the league because the amount of interest and excitement and anticipation for what could happen in Game 7, and I am not like a huge fan of the like uh, pyramid of success legacy talk, but it is amazing to think that in three days, the entire history of the NBA and how we talk about it and think about it and like actual real things like who's, you know, gets traded where and who decides they need to move on in free agency, like real, real things can get happened by random moments in game seven. Like so much will be different um, in a couple days. The legacy talk is a funny thing because we mock it because it's so prisoner of the moment often, and you can't actually know how things are going to impact a legacy because you can't actually know the future. But that doesn't diminish that the legacy is what they're playing for ultimately, right? I mean, it does kind of matter. I mean, we can't just enjoy sports on the level of, hey, everybody's good, and that and that's great, and they're playing, and you know, one team will win. That's not really part of how we enjoy this. So I think this does matter. It's huge for the Warriors. It's just massive. Um, as silly as that is, that it would come down to one game uh, to validate, validate the 73-win season, make it seem not all for naught, 
Um, it's it's staggering. And then for LeBron James to bring Cleveland their first championship in, what, 60 years? Well, I don't know. A few people are counting the minor league hockey championship that happened <laughs> like a week ago. But uh, I, I don't know. I don't know how we count those things. But but anyway, they have those two things as the uh, as the options. It's just it's just absolutely incredible. I mean, uh, as much as uh, we sports writers like to look down our noses and uh, trust me, every every sports writer in the media room is groaning at the outcome of this game, despite all the excitement around it, just because the season refuses to end. Uh, but it's glorious. You know, it's going to be great. Ethan Strauss, Warriors B-Writer for ESPN. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Josh. Joining me now is Scott Rabb. He is the author of The Whore of Akron about uh, LeBron James and Cleveland sports fandom. He's working on a sequel, and he is driving back to New Jersey after having attended Game 6 in Cleveland. Hey, Scott. Hey, Josh. How you doing? Good. So what was your experience in the game? Uh, what are your feelings at this very moment? Uh, my, my feelings are of great joy, celebration, and hope, which I don't need to tell you is exceedingly rare for a Cleveland fan. <laughs> you know, I, I felt even driving to Cleveland yesterday, I'm not sure that I actually believed we would be at 3-3. And in the arena last night, it seemed just from watching it on television that there was a kind of exuberance, joy, not fatalism. And I guess getting ahead at the very beginning of the game helped with that. But was the vibe there 100% celebratory? I think that the, the crowd certainly fed off the cast coming out the way they came out. But there were moments, I don't think it was just me. I think at one point it was uh, 84-76. And I, I think there were moments where any Cleveland fan, of certainly a fan of my vintage, felt, uh-oh, uh-oh, here we go. Uh, I don't think it's just me. So I, I don't think I relaxed until there were about two and a half minutes left in the game. And to kind of contextualize this for us, there have been a lot of close calls in Cleveland sports history in the last five decades. Um, a kind of winner-take-all game. We had that with the Indians in the mid-90s. Um, where kind of would you put this in terms of how close Cleveland is for a championship and sort of and how important Game 7 is going to be on Sunday? The only reason that this series between the Cavs and the Warriors isn't already in first place is because the 1997 Cleveland Indians went into the ninth inning of Game 7 with a one-run lead. So, so absent that particular instance, this is absolutely, I, I, don't, I don't think it's an overstatement in any way, this is absolutely, over the last 52 years, the most pressure-packed, I mean, to the extent that you could say it about any sporting event, this is a life-changing sporting event, Game 7. And with LeBron's two straight 41-point games, He's done so much in his career um, in Cleveland and in Miami to say that any kind of particular thing he does, you know, would overshadow or change the perception of him is kind of like crazy at this point, given like how many miles are on his body and how many games he's played. But I would guess that these last two performances must elevate him 
kind of in your mind and the mind of, of Cleveland fans, obviously, with the caveat that anything that happens in Game 7 will instantly overshadow Games 5 and 6. It's interesting because whenever I say that LeBron James is the best basketball player I've ever seen, I, I get a ton of grief. But you know what? I, I'd like to smoke what you've been smoking because, like, count the rings. And, the, I, you know, I, I have uh, I suffered through the entirety of Michael Jordan's career. I would never claim anyone was a better NBA player than Michael Jordan. But anyone who knows anything about pro basketball, about the NBA, who doesn't understand the greatness of LeBron James's game, there's no argument to be made there. That what he has done the past two games, and we don't know what Game 7 will bring, and you're absolutely right, the body of work should not be you know, significantly impacted by any one series or any one game at this point. But if they win Game 7, if the Cavaliers win Game 7, if they defeat the 73-9 and Golden Boys, if he brings the first championship that Cleveland has had in any major sport for 52 years, I, I don't think I need to say I rest my case. Well, you're not talking to Skip Bayless here. I'm not. I'm not going to disagree with you. I'm. I'm happy to validate your uh, your opinions well, there. <laughs> I guess what bothers me is there are still plenty of people, and I respect them for their their great knowledge of basketball and basketball history. But I keep hearing this. Yes, LeBron James may be among the best five or ten players who ever played. LeBron James made two passes last night that Magic Johnson on his best day could not have made. LeBron James is doing things on the court right now with all those miles on his body in his 13th NBA season that no one has ever seen an NBA player do before. That, that's not my opinion. That's actually what we're watching unfold in front of our eyes. And in terms of analytics, there are only two players in the conversation for the greatest of all time, and it's not based on how many rings they have. Anyone who thinks that Kobe Bryant somehow right, ranks above LeBron James and rings is all that matters, and, and they're morons. Um, what were just some kind of individual moments that you'll take away from your trip to Game 6? That, that block on Curry, followed by whatever LeBron said, after, after he swatted Curry's shot, basically the nanosecond after it left Steph's hands, that's a moment in time that our children's children's children, <laughs> assuming you know, a lot, but I mean, I mean that that was great. Curry blocked by James, making a statement on both sides of the floor. Says to the two-time MVP, "Get it out of here, not on my watch." And I and I hate to focus on that, you know, you know, rather than any particular basketball play. But the fact that the Warriors are so not themselves. I mean, we're really seeing not not to trash talk a historically great team. But we, we are seeing a, a, a historically great team implode and blame the referees and blame everyone but themselves for the fact that all the pressure is now on them. So in terms of particular moments, I, I got to say, you know, at the point at which I understood that I was there with my son at the age of 63 watching a Cleveland team do what they were doing, the, the whole experience, one of the best nights of my life. So having this conversation with you, listening to you, I am getting worried for you. I, how, I know, I know. How, oh, I know. Don't think I'm not worried, yeah. But I am worried for you. So what is your advice for all of us who have Cleveland fans in our lives? What is our role for the next few days? Like, how can I best be of assistance? Well, it's always good to talk. 
especially with you, Josh. I'm not. I'm not just saying that. But one of the things that I always hear from players, and it's a wonderful thing. It's a Zen thing. No great psychotherapist would put it any differently. You have to be present in the moment. I'm not talking about just you as as someone. Because, you know, the premise of, of the question is a little bit condescending, if you don't mind my saying. Oh, uh, so, definitely I'm condescending, just, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to be fine, you know, win, win or lose Sunday, because my entire life has prepared me to lose <laughs> on Sunday, you know, as a fan. Uh, as far as, uh, like, in this call, you might have noticed that I'm a little bit worked up. So, uh, thankfully, you haven't said, hey, get a hold of yourself. It's just sports. or Aren't you smarter than this? You know, you know what I'm saying. Don't don't try to tell. It's just a game. Yes, yes. Don't, you, you don't want to tell uh, your Cleveland fan friend, "Hey, it's not that big a deal." Hey, you know, you're going to be okay, win or lose. Uh, it, it's it's really. I mean, we're really talking about. You know, there are plenty of irrational things that we all do in our lives because, hey, it gives us pleasure to listen to opera or to eat. You know, a Reuben sandwich that we know is clogging our arteries. I think this is in that category. Unless you yourself have something really important at stake, I think the best thing you can do is to be in the moment and to love that Cleveland fan with all your heart. <laughs> the last time we talked, you said, if I can imagine Donald Trump being uh, president, I can, you know, imagine, <laughs> I can imagine a Cleveland championship parade. It feels yes. kind of mercifully that Donald Trump is a little further away from being president from the last time we talked, and, and Cleveland is a little bit closer to winning a championship? Yeah, at, at, at this moment in time, like any good Cleveland fan, whether it's the Cavs on Sunday or Trump you know, on the first Tuesday in November, I'm not counting any chickens before they hatch. All right, so what are you going to do on Sunday night? Um, you're going to watch with your family, presumably? Do you have any kind of particular setup, place that you sit, a way that you uh, cross your legs? Uh, no, I, if, uh, you know, I, if, if anything that I did or didn't do had any impact on any Cleveland sports teams, there'd be no need for us to have this conversation. We would have a shelf of trophies already. <laughs> I, I, think, I think what we'll do is we'll go back to Cleveland for the there's a big watch party. There may be ten, literally tens of thousands of people there and and I, I, it's prohibitive uh, to go out to Oakland for Game Seven. I mean, some someday I hope you know, our son will go to college, and I don't want to spend all that money on a Game Seven. So I think what we'll do is go back to Cleveland, watch it in Cleveland with tens of thousands of our brethren and sisters. It would be kind of a cool story to be for your son to be like, I didn't go to college because the Cavs won a championship. <laughs> yeah. Then someone who loves me would have to say, hey, Scott, may, may, maybe you need to get a grip on yourself. <laughs> it is <laughs> yeah. it is just a game after all. All right, well, good luck to you and to the Cavs. Thanks a million. Scott Rabb is the author of The Whore of Akron, and he enjoys Cleveland sports from time to time. Thank you very much for listening to this special edition of Hang Up and Listen. We'd love your feedback. And what we talked about today, you can email us at hangupatslate.com. Gather links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe in iTunes. You can find us at itunes.com slash slatepodcasts. When you're there, leave us a comment and a rating. Become a fan of Hang Up and Listen on Facebook at facebook.com 
slash hang up and listen. Our intern is Laura Wagner. Our producer today is Afim Shapiro. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Steve Lichtai, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. Hang Up and Listen is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts. It's iTunes.com slash Panoply. Remember Zalmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.